It is good uh, to be in uh, the pulpit at Oak Park Baptist Church. It is good to be in any pulpit for a preacher. Especially good now for Debbie and I, for my mother-in-law, to be in this particular pulpit. We are glad to be part of this family. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22 is where we'll spend our time this morning looking at the life of Abraham. I was filling out a questionnaire recently for something, and I was asked to provide some education information about my background, my college and such. And I remembered, as I was thinking about that, I did not go to college right away after graduating high school. I spent about a year just sort of flailing around with a couple of different jobs and then went into the Air Force. I went off and on throughout my Air Force career, more off than on. It took me a long time to get a bachelor's degree, but I finally did by God's grace. And then I I attended a seminary after I left the Air Force and got my seminary degree then. The main reason that I didn't go to college right out of high school was that I just didn't particularly value, at that point in my life, I didn't particularly value higher education. I just wasn't real cool on all the schoolwork and all the assignments. If I could have just gone to school without having to do any homework or take any tests or write any papers, it would all been good. It didn't work that way. And so it took me a while. And the truth of the matter is I was really not, uh, from, a, um, from a maturity standpoint, I was not ready for college. And the Air Force helped me work through all of that. And when I did take classes in college and in seminary, I usually had two major exams. You know the structure if you've been. You had two major exams. Oftentimes, you'd have a paper to write. The major exams would be a midterm and a final. And once in a while, uh, the teachers would, uh, would throw in a quiz just to sort of see uh, how you were doing. <clears throat> in the life of dads, God uses very various quizzes to help us grow. And what I would picture those quizzes to be just mostly routine matters of obedience. I'm going to throw something at you today, Gary. Let's see how you're doing. Just sort of a quiz in that sort of way. But he also uses major exams in our lives. And he uses them to test our faith and commitment. He uses them, as we're going to think about that this morning, to test the extent of our devotion toward him. When we say that we love God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength, do we really? When we say that Jesus is our king and we follow him with gladness and gratitude, Do we really? And so God throws these exams at us from time to time just to test the reality of that. Will we obey in very hard things? Will we sacrifice those things on earth that mean uh, the most to us for His sake? Will we always trust His will to be best? Those are major exams when they come our way. Now, those, those sort of devotion tests if you will, can be very hard. And sometimes they can be downright scary for us. Abraham shows us two ways today we're going to see that we endure those exams. One is to know the character of God. We need to recognize as God reveals himself in Exodus 34 that that he is merciful and gracious, that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness throughout the generations. We need to also remember that in all of these good things of God, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So we need to know the character of God as we ponder these exams and try to make our way through them. And even when we don't understand, we need to trust the ways of God. Isaiah reminds us in Isaiah 55 that his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. One way to summarize that for me is this way. God is always wise and God is always good. And so when a major exam comes my way, then I realize this is God testing the level of my devotion for him. It's not a bad thing that God would do that. It's a very good thing that God would do that. He wants to remind me he is God in my life and he is guiding me and I am to walk with him and trust in him in that way. We learn from the book of Genesis that Abraham knew what it was to have his faith tested. Using this metaphor of the exams, Abraham passed his first major exam, think with me now, when he left his native land for an unknown land. Remember, God called Abraham in Genesis 12, said, I want you to leave all that you know. And he was prosperous and had a lot extended family around him. He said, I want you to leave all of this and go to a land of which I will show you. Let's call that a midterm. And Abraham did pretty well. In fact, he was Abram then. He did pretty well with that midterm. And then we come to Genesis 22. And in Genesis 22, verse 1, we learn of one more exam. A final exam 
for Abraham, if you would. God wanted to test his commitment, wanted to see the level of his devotion. He wanted to shape his character because God had chosen and ordained Abraham to be the father of all Israel and many nations after that. If you are a believer in Christ, biblically speaking, you are a child of Abraham. Moving away from our home and our relatives is one thing. Debbie and I have done that for 42 years uh, as of last Wednesday. We get that. Moving away from home and relatives is one thing. Taking the life of your only son is a whole different category. So this would be Abraham's final exam. And we want to look at it today the, the, for us to think about. The essential thing that I want us to take today is that God's tests for us always have a purpose. And they are always for our good. They always have a purpose, and they are always for our good. In Genesis 22, God's test was meant to determine the extent of Abraham's devotion. At this point, I think, I'm going to just speculate here a little bit. At this point, I think God had it figured out. He's God. He knew where Abraham stood. He is omniscient. He is sovereign over all of these things. But what I, part of what he wanted him to do was to be able to record for us in history this man Abraham and what he did so that we could look back to his example and see this level of faith and this level of commitment and this level of devotion. And we need to stake ourselves to a context this morning. And as we do that, I find two predominant theological themes in the story of Abraham and Isaac. We're going to read verses 1 through 14 in just a moment. The first predominant theological theme that I see is this one. God wanted to provide an example for the coming nation of Israel, what it means to love and to trust God. And Abraham represents remarkable faith for his followers. We can only imagine. Now, we have the written word, and we can look, we can study it, we can reflect on it, we can think about it, we can talk about it. Back in those days, they didn't have the written word. So we can only imagine the awe and the wonder as generation after generation of Jewish heritage passed down the stories of Abraham. So God wanted to provide an example for the coming nation of Israel. That's one of the predominant themes here. The second one in this passage, the picture of Isaac on the sacrificial altar is meant to point us to another sacrifice. Isaac being placed on the altar as an act of, 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 of obedience by Abraham foreshadows a greater act of obedience of Jesus going to the cross. And in doing this, the text is meant to show the readers of this that the concept of God providing a substitutionary sacrifice was part of God's original plan. Abraham is our model today because he demonstrated a life of supreme devotion. I want to look at the passage a little bit topically. You're familiar with it. Most of you are. Dads are the specific audience. It's our day, dads, so we need to hear a word from the Lord. But I trust there will be instructions and implications for all of us who are followers of Christ. So let's read the narrative. I'm going to read back through it as we work through it a little bit. But I want to read the whole story so that we get the whole impact of it. <clears throat> Genesis 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham. God never tempts, James tell us, tells us, but he does test. God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. There's a picture for us. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. Verse 7, Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, Abraham said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order. And bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. 
Things had to be getting a little hairy about here. Verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand, and he took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And the angel said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. I see four indicators here this morning as we think about it, just in thematically. I see four indicators of a life that is fully devoted to God. I see a ready responsiveness. Abraham's ready when God calls upon him. I see a willing obedience that Abraham's going to demonstrate for us. I see a commitment to trust, an absolute commitment to trust. And then I see him finish what I call a testimony of faithfulness. Because a lot of things go on in our life, but it's getting to the end that matters most for us. So let's look at those four things. The first indicator of a readiness to respond is in verses 1 and 2. God speaks, Abraham responds. Verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham and said, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah. Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Abraham demonstrates a readiness, a readiness to, to hear from God and to do what God is going to tell him. How do we develop that? How do we as believers today develop that sort of readiness to respond? I, I think there are two parts to the answer. The first is that we need to discipline ourselves to listen to God, to listen to him. God said to him, Abraham, it sounds simple, doesn't it? But what, what's often missed here is this, Abraham was ready to hear from God. And let me just tell you convictionally, God has never spoken to me audibly. He's never said, Gary, here I am, Lord. Now, he speaks to me in a lot of ways, but he's never spoken to me audibly. It never fails that I say, God never speaks audibly, that after the service, someone will come up and say, God has spoken to me. Okay, cool. I get it. He just doesn't speak to me audibly. Maybe, the, I don't know. And I don't, mean to dis, I don't mean to make light of your experience. But after the days of the apostles... God's primary method of speaking to us was how? It's through his word. It's through his word. Yes. So we must read our Bibles then. We must come with our ears open. Not just our eyes open, but our ears open. We must listen for God to speak to us through his word. Let me jump in with a quick application. Sometimes we face changes in life. The Oakhams faced a change in life last September when I left full-time pastorate to move into a denominational position at the association office, presumably part-time, and Debbie keeps asking, when is the part-time, part of this part-time thing going to happen? It's not happened yet. But she's in. She's all in. 42 years, she's all in. Trust me. So it's good. So sometimes we face changes in life. Over the last five days since Tuesday, when we really started in earnest, we've been moving. We've been moving from Georgetown to our new home in New Albany. The boxes are all there. I won't say the move is finished. I will say that everything that was in that house is now in the new house. So sometimes we face changes in life. We face a new job. We move to a new city. For younger folks, more practically, sometimes younger folks come along and, and they develop an attraction to a boy or a girl point of all that, it's very important to be able to recognize God's voice in the midst of these changes that are presenting themselves. It's very important for us to recognize God's voice in the midst of the noise of the culture. When the culture might say, Gary, buy this kind of house. My wife and I and my mother-in-law, we had to pray about what kind of house would be suitable for the three of us going forward. What kind of house might be best used so that we could use our home for hospitality. Sometimes we get well-intended counsel about these things. All of that helps, but we must prepare ourselves to recognize God's voice in the midst of that. We want to know the will of God if we are a genuine believer. To do that, we must recognize when God speaks to us in Scripture. And our discipline shouldn't stop at hearing. 
We hear, I heard from God. Our discipline shouldn't stop there. We prove the sincerity of our listening when we act on what we have heard. I remember growing up, my father and mother had two older brothers and my dad, and it was sort of funny. We lived in a two-story home, and we would be upstairs, my brothers and I, and supposed to be settling down for bed, and we would not be settling down for bed. And my mom would call up and say, you need to be quiet. You need to go to sleep. She'd do that a couple of times. And then, and then Dad, as if we wouldn't know, Dad said, this is your father speaking. Thank you, Dad. <laughs> but what he meant when he said that was, take heed. He didn't have to say, if I come up there, you're in trouble. We knew that. And so when he said, this is your father speaking, we got it. If I could hear, and then God would say, Gary, wherever, I mean, God, I'm sorry. My dad would say, Gary, and wherever I was, I needed to respond to him. I didn't, it just was the way we were raised. And he didn't want to just know. I said, yeah, dad, or, or yeah, dad, whatever. He just said, he wanted me to respond so that I was ready to respond to him, to obey him, to go to where he was, to make myself available to him. The second part of readiness then is demonstrating that availability. Demonstrating it. At the end of verse 1, what does Abraham say? He say, here am I. This is, this is telling for us, Abraham had heard from God before. You know his story. In Genesis 12, in Genesis 15, and in Genesis 17, God spoke specifically to Abraham. And Abraham knew his voice. So when Abraham says, here am I. He's not just saying, over here, Lord, see me? Here I am. I'm over here. Can you find me? His response is implying his availability. Here am I. What do you desire from me? We see this in other places. God called Moses. God called Isaiah. We remember well young Samuel in 1 Samuel 3 when he thinks, when he's hearing and he keeps going to Eli back and forth and Eli finally gives him instruction and then Samuel hears again and he says, speak for your servant hears. It's an availability that he's demonstrating there. In case we think that's gone away, Jesus explains this relationship for us, I think, between hearing and being ready to respond. In the Good Shepherd passage in John 10, Jesus talks about the thief and the robber, and he says, but the Good Shepherd, the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. He goes before him, and the sheep follow him. Why? For they know his voice. They hear him, and they respond to him. So we indicate our readiness to respond by making ourselves available. Here I am, or here am I, means I am ready. If we look at the story going further, that kind of response also indicates a willingness to obey. Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. He took in his hand the fire and the knife, and they both went together. Seven. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, said to his father, Abraham, excuse me, my father. And he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order, bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. So the second notion, the second indicator of devotion, sincere devotion to God, is a willingness to obey. As we read the story of Abraham, beginning in Genesis 12, we see that he has a pattern of obedience. We know that Abraham was not sinless. We know that Abraham had flaws. Twice, Abraham sort of leaned on a, on, on a half-truth about his wife being his sister so that he could protect his own hide. So we know that Abraham had flaws, but he has a pattern of obedience. In Genesis 12, verse 4, Abram went out as the Lord told him. In Genesis 17, verse 23, a little bit of a different context. It says, Abraham fulfilled the covenant of circumcision as God had said to him. It is this pattern of obedience that reflects genuine and sincere devotion. 
It is not just saying, I love Jesus. It is doing what Jesus calls us to do over and over and over again, doing that, where we prove our devotion to him. I want to make six observations here about a fully devoted obedience from the text. Verse 3, we see that obedience is prompt. Abraham rose early in the morning. I think the text implies here that it was the very next morning that Abraham began to put things together and headed out for them. So obedience that is, that is part of devotion is prompt. It is also complete. I noticed in studying this past week that the specific location seems to be important. Three times the text tells us he went to the place where God had told him. He went to the place where God had told him. So obedience is complete. The emphasis seems to be that Abraham did not stop short. He did not try to find shortcuts. I confess there's times when I get, a, when I get some sort of direction from the Lord, and I want to find the easy way to get from here to there. But obedience that fulfills complete devotion is complete. It's complete. Abraham fully complied with God's commands. Now think about it with me. When, that's helpful to us when we think about the gospel. That's helpful for us when we reflect on the idea of complete obedience as a believer. We're taken to Jesus. We're reminded to him. The author of Hebrews tells us to look unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The pattern of Abraham's life was to finish the task. Obedience that, that, that verifies our devotion is often progressive. Verse 5, stay here. I and the boy will go over there. There were steps that Abraham had to take to get to where God wanted him to get, literally and physically. Abraham's life proves that obedience often involves multiple steps and phases. Abraham, perhaps as much as anybody in the Scripture other than Jesus, proves these multiple steps and phases over extended periods of time. My experience working as a pastor and, and helping other pastors, those who have been called to the pastor, they understand this concept of progressive obedience. Because when they've been called to the pastor, it, it often involves several seasons. They go to college. They go to seminary. Some of them, if they are blessed, get to serve in an internship. And then, and then perhaps they're, they're called to an associate role. Finally, if it's their calling and God grace, God's grace honors that, then they get the chance to be a senior pastor or the primary teaching pastor. I can't say how many times I have told a young guy who's coming up and talking about all the responsibilities and, and how hard they're working to, to keep a job going so they can afford their school and also to be raising children, all of these things going on and, 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 and sort of wanting to be through it. And I would just encourage them, maybe not so much encourage them, but at least remind them it's a season. It's a season. God's going to get you there. Oh, by the way, when you get there, you're not going to be able to say, and I just couldn't wait to get because the seasons just keep going. The progressive obedience just keeps continuing. During that time, um, uh, of course, they're working different jobs and moving and going through progressive obedience. And that's not just for pastors. We see it in, in vocational careers as well, where believers are trusting and obeying God throughout their journey. The text reminds us that obedience, fourth, can be very costly. Verse 6, Adam laid the wood on Isaac. He took up the fire and the knife, and both of them went off together. We know here, looking back, that Abraham had figured out what God was asking, yet he didn't shrink back. He didn't shrink back. We have no indication in the Scripture that he waffled here, none whatsoever. Why not? How, how in the world could he do that? Why didn't he say, why am I doing this? We, we don't get any indication of him shrinking from what God has demanded of him. And that brings us to our fifth observation. Abraham's faith, we sang about this this morning. Abraham's faith was grounded, listen, Abraham's faith was grounded in God's faithfulness. That's a very important principle. Please don't miss it because the Old Testament shows it to us over and over again. Our faith is grounded in the faithfulness of God. 
Our faith is grounded in the faithfulness of God. Because God is who He says He is and will do what He says He will do, we can have faith in Him. This is a major exam. God is asking, Abraham, are you devoted enough in me to give me back your only son as a sacrifice? We can only imagine the questions that were going through Abraham's mind. Wait a minute, God. I was way old when I had this baby. Way old. Way old when I had this baby. And, and, and you've told me he's the son of the promise. Not the one I had through Hagar, but him. And now you're telling me I'm supposed to take him up on the mountain and sacrifice. We can only imagine some of the things that were going through Abraham's mind. But looking back at this story from the shadow of the cross, we see the gospel come into view because we see the faithfulness of God. We see the faithfulness of God. Abraham had learned to trust God as God had guided him to this point. And he knew that God was faithful. And this intentional gospel perspective, thinking about the cross, God never asks more from us than what he has done for us, ever. Think about that with me. God tested, Abraham, excuse me, God tested Abraham's love with his demand for Isaac. The gospel shows us that on the cross, God demonstrated his love for us through his only son. And this is love. John writes for us. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. For our sake, Nathan taught us a couple of weeks ago, for our sake He made Him who knew no sin to be sin so that through Him we might become the righteousness of God. God never asks from us what He has not already done far exceedingly for us. The great verse that we all know so well, God so loved the world, this is his love, that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Some of you might be here this morning and your home environment, your upbringing does not understand that kind of love. Does not understand the sacrificial nature. Does not understand love that gives more so understands what love demands. So I invite you this morning to think about Abraham's story from that perspective. To think about what God, and you say, man, this is weird. Why would God tell him to go sacrifice his only son? It just doesn't make sense to me. Because he was showing us, he was showing you and me, and everyone who has come between us, here's what Jesus is going to do. Here's what I'm going to do with my son. Here's how much I love you. I'm never going to ask you to love me more than I love you. I, you can't love me more than I love you, God would tell us. And so if your experience is not to know that kind of love, I invite you to think about that this morning. If it raises questions in your heart, maybe that's God drawing you to himself. But before you leave today, seek out someone that you know, someone that's invited you. Come talk to me, and let's talk about the love of God that sacrifices his own son, that whoever would repent and believe would have everlasting life. I invite you to do that today. If you get nothing else from this story, and you're not a follower of Christ this morning, please get that. Please get that. Abraham didn't know why, his, why God demanded his son. He didn't know this. But he did know, Genesis 17 tells us, when we get to this stage in the narrative, that he did know Isaac was the son of the promise. Jim read for us earlier from Hebrews 11, Abraham believed God was able to resurrect Isaac. Figuratively speaking, God did that. So Abraham went forth on this mission because he had learned to walk in the footsteps of a faithful God. Learn that, brothers and sisters. Learn that. Our faith is not us. It's in who God is and what he does. Be encouraged by that. Let me make one more observation about a fully devoted obedience. Obedience says to God, you are God and I am not. I'm getting this from verse 9. They came to the place of which God had told him. There's this place notion again. It really matters. Abraham built the altar. That matters because of the level of obedience. Go to this specific spot, Abraham. Abraham built the altar there and he laid the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Through all of his experience, 
Abraham had learned to trust in the fact that God's ways are higher than his ways. And that his thoughts were higher than Abraham's thoughts. Over the last few months, not successfully yet, but I've been, some of it, I've been trying to memorize Psalm 16 because it speaks so well of this notion of trusting God. I've been trying to memorize Psalm 16 because it reminds me of the Godness of God. That he alone is God and that we are not. It starts off this way. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And then it picks up in verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. Now this is David and David knew some rough circumstances. But he's saying here my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices and my flesh also dwells secure. How can you do that, David? Because you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, God. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. No, David sees the goodness of God and the godness of God. You made known to me the path of life. If you're a believer, say amen. See, y'all can say amen. It's all right. I do it every week. You say, you know that guy, Gary? Who's that guy, Gary? Well, you may not know him, but you've heard him. It's okay. Where was I? Oh, yeah. You may know. You made known to me the path of life. In your presence, parentheses, God, there is fullness of joy at your right hand. There are pleasures forevermore. I'm trying to memorize that psalm because it reminds me of the godness of God. Psalm 16 reminds us, God is God and God is good. It's through these major exams of radical obedience that we honor God. We prove our faith genuine. We prove the extent of our devotion. We come to the third indicator now. So far we've seen the indicator of a readiness to respond and a willingness to obey. We come to the third indicator, which is Abraham's commitment to trust. Let's go back to verse 7 and pick up there and read from there again. Beginning in verse 7, Genesis 22. This is, I'm hitting this dialogue, this short dialogue in 7 and 8 multiple times. It's the most important section in this passage here, I think. Isaac said to his father, Abraham. Okay, you get the picture. He's, he's carrying all the stuff. They get to the spot. Again, we don't know the mind of Isaac, and we need to be a little bit careful. But one can't help to wonder what Isaac is thinking at this point. And he, he displays a little bit of his thoughts right here. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And Abraham said, here am I, my son. He sees ready to respond. He's not just saying, look over here, I'm over here. Here am I, my son. And Isaac said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. Let's see what this tells us. Continue to read in 9. When they came to this place, we've read this, to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar, laid the wood in order, bound Isaac his son, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then, look, then Abraham, we're talking about this commitment to trust here. Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Those are hard words in the ESV. I'm not sure if your translation may say it a little differently. But we talk about sacrificing sacrificial lambs and bulls and goats. Took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here am I. Let's stop there. I'm breaking the text in strange places here just to help with the illustrations that I'm trying to show you this morning. In the New Testament, Abraham's faith commands great respect. He is praised for it. He's captured in Hebrews 11 because of his faith. We read that. Jim read for us this morning. In Romans 4, Paul reminds us that Abraham's faith was counted as righteousness before God. In James 2, Abraham's faith is shown to be righteous when he obeyed God's word to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. So this third indicator of devotion, we want to take those from Abraham's model, from the testimonies of Abraham's life. Our devotion to God is found in our commitment to trust him. And it is that commitment to trust him that equips our faith. Remember, the central thing we want to remember this morning is that God's plans for us always have a purpose. And they're always good. 
Every major exam is to test our level of faith. Four things about faith I want to talk about here quickly. And again, I'm a preacher, so I'm alliterating. I want to use four words that begin with the letter L. Faith learns from previous experience that God is faithful to his word. Faith learns from previous experience that God is faithful to his word. Talking here about the birth of Isaac. Talking about Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. Abraham knew that God was going to do what he said he was going to do and be who he was. Second, faith looks for the hand of God to provide while continuing to obey. God will provide for himself the lamb, Isaac, my son. He will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. Faith lives, third, by God's instruction. It came to the place of which God had told him to, and built the altar. Faith lives by the instructions that God gives to us. Fourth, faith lingers in obedience, even when it appears to be frighteningly costly. I can't, I, there's about five places in this passage, maybe six, where I'd have stopped. No farther. Can't go any farther. But Abraham didn't. He continued to linger as he was trusting and walking with God in obedience. Every step was an act of obedience, and he continued to do that. Stretched out his hand and took the knife. Every step of faith must have been harder and harder and harder for Abraham. But there's no evidence that his commitment to trust God ever wobbled, ever wavered. Let's think about it for a moment. God teaches us, excuse me, the Bible teaches us God will test his children. We read that. First one, after these things, God tested Abraham. It's in other places in the scripture. God does this to prove our faith. God does this to strengthen our faith. God does this to increase our devotion to him. But we need to remember, God does not test us for his own discovery. God knows if we're believers, and he knows the extent of our faith. He does not test us for his own discovery. God tests us for our own development. That's why he tests us, so that we might be prepared for the tasks that God will call us to do. I've been moving this past week, and, 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 and I've got sore muscles from head to toe. I've got places that hurt that I didn't even know that I had places. And just, I keep telling myself, especially as I'm thinking about this passage, God tests our faith, and we need to have our faith tested so, so our faith will get stronger. God's testing my muscles this week so that my muscles can get stronger. About the time they get stronger, I'm done, and they get weak again. Just as my muscles grow through vigorous exercise, our faith grows through repeated episodes. And I'm fine to let my moving muscles grow soft for a little while. But they're proven through vigorous exercise. Faith grows through repeated episodes of consistent calls for obedience. Devotion to God increases over time. When we're first saved, we love God. If, if, we're, if we're genuinely converted and we've been sort of well-discipled in pre-conversion, sometimes you see people, I mean, they're just literally on fire for the Lord right from the get-go. But their devotion, even that person that starts out white-hot, their devotion for God, their understanding of what God has done for them increases their devotion and love for Him over time. They learn, they wait, they act, all of that in obedience and trust. What someone described as the long road of consistent obedience. That's a good word for us. The long road of consistent obedience. There's no perfection there. It's walking by faith, not by sight trusting in the Lord to guide us, being ever grateful for grace and mercy and restoration when we confess our sins. The impact of that devotion is highlighted in this dialogue in verses 7 and 8. Abraham, Father, where's the wood? I mean, where's the lamb? We're all here. Everything's here but the lamb. Where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God's going to provide the lamb. Isaac may be asking any time now, Lord. I don't mean to make light of the scripture. I hope you trust what I'm doing here. I think there's two items here for dads. Let me, let me hone in on us for a minute, men. In reverse order. Verse 8. Isaac's faith in Abraham. Listen. Isaac's faith in Abraham taught Isaac to have great faith in God. You hear that? 
Abraham's example of faith was Isaac's model. Okay? We don't know the state of Isaac's faith at this point. We're not told. All kinds of speculation and conjecture about how old he was and all these other kinds of things. But the fact of the matter is we don't know. What we do see very clearly is that Isaac had absolute faith in his father. Trusted what his father was doing. So that's one item for us dads. In verse 7, Isaac asked this question, where's the lamb? That question had to make Abraham wonder a little bit. No matter how strong his faith is, he's going to provide it. When? Don't know, but he's going to provide it. And see, Hebrews 11 tells us, seems to indicate, that Abraham was willing to take the life of his son because he trusted that God would resurrect his son. But he tells his son God will provide. He asked this question. This is interesting about the scripture. You know this. He asked this question early in Genesis. Where does the answer come? The answer comes in John 1.29. When the baptizer looks, Jesus enters, this, enters the arena. The baptizer looks and points and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So let's make an application. Dads, granddads, are you pointing your sons and daughters to the Lamb? They're not looking for you to be perfect. And you've been around for a few years, a few decades. You, you, you're with your son. You're with your own children. You're with your grandchildren. Some of you may have great-grandchildren. They know that your children are not looking for you to be perfect. What they're looking for is integrity. They wouldn't describe it that way because they don't know that word, most of them. But what they're looking for is integrity. What they're looking for is consistency, especially in the home. We realize as believers that the gospel is more caught than it is taught. We realize, we ought to realize that not only in our own homes, but also in our spheres of life with the people that God puts in our circles. We need to speak about the gospel because faith comes by hearing of the word. But nevertheless, the gospel is more caught than taught. It is what they see in us day in and day out. It is what Isaac saw in his father that helped him trust his father's trust in God. Dads, point your child to the lamb. Point your child or your children to the Lamb through the, your own long road of consistent obedience. Don't worry about perfection. Be faithful. Be consistent. Tell them when you have flubbed it up. Teach devotion by your own example. That brings us to the fourth indicator. The fourth indicator is going to say it proves the case. Look with me in verse 12. The fourth indicator sort of proves the case we're making this morning. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy. This is the angel speaking to Abraham. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. I'd like to park on that fear of God thing, but that's not what we're doing today. Now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. We show our supreme devotion to God by a testimony of faithfulness. The actual doing of what God requires is the highest measure of devotion. The extent of our devotion is sometimes measured by a willingness to give up by what matters most. It's easy to follow Christ when there's no hard tests in front of us. I shouldn't say it quite that way. Easier to follow Christ when there's no hard tests laid out in front of us. Our own heart makes it hard. <laughs> but it's easier, if you will. Abraham's example causes us to ask, in this context, is God more precious to me than my most precious treasure on the face of this earth? God, my son has leukemia. I will do all that I can for him. But whether he lives or dies, I give him to you. God, my daughter is addicted to heroin. I will intervene in every humanly way possible. But I entrust her to you. 
God, more simply, God, my wife is not respecting me before my children. This is not testimonial, by the way. God, my wife is not respecting me before my children. I will show her that I am deserving the best way that I know how. And he asks you, God, to change her heart. Those examples and others, they can be long, intense. They can be greatly burdening, seemingly insurmountable. They are real. They are hard. We should never... Have a, have a pious, pithy sort of expression. God knows, hon, and it'll be okay. That never has its place when people are going through these kinds of struggles, as well as intended as it might be. It is our faith in God's faithfulness. It is our faith in God's faithfulness that helps us endure, even when the solution that we desire does not come. That faith is not passive. It's not inactive. It's fully engaged. When we've got... When we've got serious issues, we're engaging in every human way that we can. But ultimately, out of our confidence to God's goodness and devotion as our Heavenly Father, we give our beloved over to God. This is by far the best way to love them, by the way. You can't love your beloved who's struggling in some way ever as much as God loves them. Abraham teaches us that genuine, sold-out devotion loves the giver more than the gift. Jesus said it this way, He who does not love me more than father or mother is not worthy of me. He says it a little more positively in Matthew 6 when he talks about why do you worry about these things? This heavenly father is providing all of these things for you. Examples of his love for us. And when Jesus says that if you do not love me more than your father and mother, you're not worthy of me, that's a hard teaching. It should not be seen as a threat, but neither should it be taken lightly. He means what he says. In rare situations where our devotion to God presents a conflict with our devotion for someone else, we must not wobble there. We must remember what Jeremiah says in Lamentations. This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in Him. God's ways are often mysterious, but they're never malicious. They're often mysterious. Sometimes we don't have answers, but His ways are never malicious. He does not hurt for the sake of hurting to his children. Abraham's experience sets the bar high for us. That's why his story's in Hebrews 11. It's through the major exams in life that we put our devotion on display, loving the giver more than we do the gift. I have one son who teaches school in Louisville, one daughter-in-law, four precious grandbabies. They live about 25 minutes from here, and they are a blessed gift from God. This past Wednesday, in the midst of all the boxes and the sweating and everything else, my wife and I celebrated our 42nd anniversary. She means more to me than anything else on the face of this earth. Proverbs 12, 4 is true for me. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. Yet I cannot profess genuine devotion to God unless I am ready to surrender to them, all of them, to him. If he asks me for that, I pray that he never would. But if I'm supremely and genuinely devoted to God, if he does, I prove my devotion by yielding them. Maybe very costly. Maybe very costly, but I can never put conditions on my devotion to God. No matter what hard circumstances come our way, no matter what God may ask of us, no matter what God may take away from us, we know that he is good. We know that he is wise. Please embrace the reality that he loves us more than we can ask or imagine. Romans 8, 28 is so true. And we don't, again, it's not a bromide. It's not just sort of a little statement that we put out there. But we embrace it, especially in our dark moments. And we, we embrace it with our mind and we ask God to bring our heart along with it. God makes all things work together for good. For those who love him and for those who are called according to his purpose. You're gonna, you may start there with your mind and that's just, then just ask God, God, my heart's not there right now. Please have my heart catch up with my head. I know this is truth. It doesn't seem true right now, God, so help me. He proved his love for us at Calvary. We pick up, excuse me, we prove our devotion to him as we pick up our cross and 
follow Jesus every day. We study the model of Abraham so that we can learn how to respond to the call of God, to obey the will of God, to trust the plan of God, and finish whatever task he lays before us so that our testimony will be one of faithfulness. Even when this requires us to offer up our most precious treasures. Like Abraham and the other heroes of faith in Hebrews 11, we gladly do those things. We gladly do those things because we are looking forward to a city whose designer and builder is God. We desire a better country, a heavenly country. Because we know that when we live this way, Hebrews 11 tells us God is not ashamed to be called our God, for he is the one who has prepared this city for us. That's devotion. God's to ours, to us. We return that devotion in the ways that we've spoken of this morning. That's something that's beyond your understanding. Again, I invite you to please seek someone out before you leave here today. If you have questions, questions are fair. Good. God is causing you to be curious about the gospel, curious about the truth claims of Christianity. Please follow up on those questions that someone might speak to you about the things that we've been talking about this morning. If your music guys would come forward, I will pray for us, and we will sing. Let's pray together. Guys and girls, music. Father, we look at the story of Abraham, and we are reminded it is a familiar story. Many of us in the room know it well. And we delight in it, God, because it stands for us as an inspiration. An intimidating inspiration at times, no question. But an, but an inspiration. It is there, Father, we know as all of your word is there. It is there to teach us. Equip us, help us. The bar is set high by the narrative of Isaac on the altar. And yet, Father, that, that bar is never higher that you set for us. That bar is never higher than what you have done for us already. So we rejoice in you. Father, as we think about dads today, thank you for dads. Thank you for their influence in the lives of their children. God, we acknowledge that this side of glory, even the best believing dad, is going to fail and stumble from time to time. We're thankful for grace and mercy. But Father, there are some who did not have good fathers in their homes. I don't know, Father, all of these folks well enough to know there might even be some in here who do not even know who their biological dad is. It doesn't change the fact that dads matter. And it, and it highlights the fact that only you, Lord, are a perfect heavenly Father who will never disappoint, who will always do good, even in the midst of hard tests. God, you are growing us, helping us trust you, showing us how to love you. Thank you for these proofs for us, Father. As we go out today, God, I pray we would take the example of Abraham. Just use it as best we can, Father, for our own good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.